have your Bible with you tonight, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We have a little lull here on Sunday nights with James uh, finishing last week and then Christmas and New Year's over these next two Sundays. Uh, I didn't really want to start a new series and then take two weeks off. And then in mid-January, my family and I are going to take a, a vacation together. So I, I didn't want to start a new series just yet. Um, so I thought I'd preach tonight from a text that has been on my mind lately. Um, I figured maybe that's why it's been on my mind lately. You know, I, I don't, I don't know that. Only God knows that. But I keep being pulled back of late to the necessity of the cross for us, for us here in Moundsville Baptist Church. I, I don't mean to imply that you all don't know about the cross or forget the cross or that that's not what I mean at all. I, I mean just we don't want to lose the essence of our identity as Christians in the world right now and in our community. And when I I think about how I don't want it to get old, which a lot of that is on me, right, and on preaching because um, I can make it get old. You know, I can make it become monotonous and humdrum. I don't want to do that. But I realize how much more often I need to make sure I'm clear about the necessity to make the cross our highest priority. And I hope the Holy Spirit tonight will convince us all of the same. I, I believe that God means to work here in our church and to save people in our town. And this is the only way to do that with any eternal value. So let me pray and we'll walk through these verses together tonight. Father, thank you for the word of the cross for us this night. God, it's Christmas. We are thankful to be focused on the manger. We don't want to lose sight of how precious this time of year is to us for so many reasons. But Father, may we not lose sight of the reason Jesus came and the reason that you established the office of preaching and called forth your church from the darkness of unbelief, God, in every nation. Please help me tonight to preach this text faithfully. Help me not to proclaim myself, but to proclaim Christ. And I pray, Father, that as those who want to hear your word and those who want to be changed by it, that you would help us understand and believe this evening. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ these things. Amen. I'm going to begin at verse 18, and I'm just going to walk through this with you. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Now, if we would have started back in verse 1, and made our way to 18, Paul is basically telling them why trusting in words of eloquent wisdom for the proclamation of the gospel would actually empty the cross of its power. Again, he's continuing right out of verse 17. That's why you have the word for here. The cross is only a saving word to those who are being saved by it, by hearing it, by hearing it. And that's the way that Paul talks about it here. To those who are dying, that is to those who don't believe it right now, it's folly. The message we preach is nonsensical and useless as far as the world is concerned. And we won't, there's no way to change that about the gospel without ruining it. Right? So if we, well, let, let me continue here. 
For those of us who are being saved, this word, this message, in and of itself, is the very power of God that is saving us. This is how Paul talks about it in Romans, right in chapter 1. Uh, he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It is that. It is that for those who are being saved. It wasn't that wording, being saved, right? That's not, it's not an unorthodox way to say it. Paul isn't making a mistake there. It, the word of the gospel was not just to get us to believe. The word of the gospel is how we keep believing. If we're not hearing it, our faith fails. And so we're being saved by it in that sense. Not in the sense that uh, God brings our salvation. He accomplishes it another way outside of the cross. It's by the word of the cross. There's power in that word that is saving us. Martin Luther would argue that um, preaching was sacramental. Now, I know we don't use that word, and, and, and that's okay. What he's saying is that the grace of God is coming through in the preaching of the word. It's there for us. And when we realize that we aren't reaching our community, right? When we start to think maybe we need a revival of God's power in our midst, that's a very specific thing to be talking about. It's not just energy for things to happen. The power of God is present. We have access to that power. It's at our disposal in one place. God's power to save comes in the form of a word, this word. We're saved by hearing the word of the cross in Romans 10, 17. This is God's deliberate strategy. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And he's quoting Isaiah 29, 14. God has a strategy to accomplish our salvation and it includes tearing apart all our preconceived notions of how a person is made right with God. We're born with those. We develop those from our flesh over time. How does God save? How can a person be made right with our Creator? The means by which God destroys the wisdom of the wise and thwarts the discernment of the discerning of the world is the word of the cross. That's how He does it. right? So anybody proclaiming that word does that to the wise and the discerning of the world. They confound it. The wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning, would never come up with salvation this way, by grace through faith, by means of a substitute. Why does God want to do this destroying work? Because God means to save by what we would think of as pure folly and nonsense. God wants, He desires, and He has designed to render our ability to be responsible for our salvation absolutely useless he would have us take no credit whatsoever and the word of the cross serves that purpose verse 20 where is the one who is wise where is the scribe where is the debater of this age has not god made foolish the wisdom of the world god's destruction of the world's wisdom at the cross is comprehensive God would have us be saved. He would have our curse be undone by a means and a design that we would never design and never create. Chapters 1 and 2 in 1 Corinthians speak to the wisdom of God in the Word and the method of the cross as something otherworldly. Something otherworldly. Something disclosed only to those it is actively saving. 
as they hear it. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So by saving sinners through the foolishness of the word of the cross, God has made it so the world will not, cannot, does not gain salvation through its own wisdom. Now notice there how God sets the cross on one side of salvation and the wisdom of the world on the other side. Right? He sets them against each other. They do not work together. This means the cross is the complete opposite of what human wisdom thinks and concludes and believes. We cannot resolve that. Right? We, we cannot resolve our message and its foolishness to those who are listening to it. We have to have faith even in our preaching, our witnessing, our evangelizing, our proclaiming. It has to be by faith. Humanity doesn't have the ability to comprehend the means of salvation, but they aren't neutral in that either, but actively set against God and against the means that God has chosen. God saves through foolishness. Who wants to be a fool? Who wants to be weak? Who wants to be needy? We must be brought to the end of our delusional ropes as human beings, beloved. And you don't have to try to make people feel foolish. Right? That, that, that's not what we do. The gospel is foolish already to the world. So don't be surprised when people think you're dumb and you're foolish and you believe in fairy tales. And of course, they think they're wise. They think they, that they know. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs. This, again, he's contrasting this way with proclaiming Christ crucified, the folly of what we preach, right? Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. For, for what? For salvation. But we preach Christ crucified. Crucified. Notice he does not say, we preach Christ crucified and resurrected. Now, it's in to preach Christ crucified is to preach the risen Christ. Absolutely. But notice what he's trying to say here. You are not going to get by the cross and its foolishness in proclamation. Right? So he leaves it right there. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Why would we preach what a stumbling block, what's a stumbling block? Why would we preach what is folly to people? Because that's how God saves. Notice God has made it so that the skill of a speaker is not what saves. Right? It, it, the, the, the ability to use words and vocabulary and speak publicly and all these things, that, that's not the way God uses. That's what the world thinks is wise. That's what the world thinks makes somebody credible. Their ability. There are ways people try to determine what is worthwhile, what's trustworthy, what's believable, what's true. Jewish people in Paul's day in particular demanded signs. They wanted tangible proof of something. Namely that Jesus was the truth. And of course Jesus provided all the tangible proof one could want so their demands are dishonest. So a sign for what? A sign telling what? What they wanted was a reason to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And they said, if you do signs, that's why the Pharisees kept asking, what sign will you do? What do you do to prove to us that you have this authority? And Jesus doesn't normally give in to them, but he's doing signs and, and miracles all over the place. Why didn't they believe them? Because that's not what they're interested in doing. Seeking signs tells us they won't find salvation. Right? That, that's, it, it's not going to come about that way. If that was how salvation came about, right, for the world, Jesus doesn't ascend after his resurrection. Jesus, when Jesus ascends and sends his spirit, he's telling us, All the power to do what I did, it's in that message I gave to you. And any one of you at any time, in any place, can proclaim it. And God will bring people to himself through it. They wanted a reason to believe that Jesus was telling the truth when Scripture reveals that we are too foolish to believe the truth. So it's not going to work. Greeks, which was a catch-all word here for Gentiles, Seek wisdom for salvation. They believe that knowledge would save, that by attaining wisdom they would transcend reality. That they, that that's what, uh, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and, you know, Heraclitus and all that, that's what they were doing. They were trying to find the answers to the universe to unlock the keys to reality. And so, you have Plato's forms and all these different, that they believed, some of them believed in, you know, uh, was it Aristotle that came up with the unmoved mover? There's a, there's a transcendent source behind all this, but we can't know what it is. They believe that knowledge would save, that by attaining wisdom you would transcend reality. But Jesus Christ is the power. Jesus is the sign. And Jesus is the wisdom of God. So if He's rejected, those things cannot be found. What you want isn't there. It is, but... It's not what we want. The Gentiles are also dishonest. They wanted the wisdom, the necessary knowledge to save themselves. Tell us what to do and we'll do it. We're not asking you to do it for us. Then you'll get the credit and we won't. You'll look like the genius. We'll look like the needy fools. Right. Now, what is the opposite of those two things for Paul? What's the opposite of a message that salvation could be found where power is or by becoming supremely wise? The opposite of that, which here the Jews and Gentiles are filling in for the whole world, for all unbelievers, at least in a foundational sense. What is the opposite of that? The cross is the opposite of that. We preach Christ crucified. When you hear preaching where Christ is not the goal of that message, the foundation of that message, and it's explicit, you're not hearing Christian sermons. Why do I not like Joel Osteen? Why? I don't care that his church is gigantic. I don't care that he's wealthy. That's none of my business. He doesn't preach Christ. So I don't care what he has to say. He's not helping anybody. All right? He's hurting. That's what's so bothersome about it. I don't care how much somebody knows about the end times. I don't care how much somebody knows about this thing and that thing and how well they know movies and how well they know culture because the big thing now, of course, is contextualization. And so the only way you can uh, win certain people is if you speak their language and know what they're talking about because that's what missionaries have to do. And, and okay, there's, there's a place for contextualization, right? Paul does that, I think. And Paul even says it later in 2 Corinthians that he's become all things to all people. To say the same thing. 
to preach Christ crucified. You, you, it's just dumb to the world. It's weak and it's foolish. But God says, listen, it saves. It saves. We proclaim a word. That's what we have. That's where all the power of God is. We proclaim a word, a message. That's where all the wisdom of God is. We preach the message that puts our foolishness for rejecting God on full display. We preach the message that reveals we don't have the ability to reach our own means of salvation. And in a world where people want proof that Jesus is the truth and want wisdom, the wisdom to save themselves, we preach Christ crucified, the foolishness and weakness of God. If Jesus was all-powerful, he wouldn't have been killed by the Romans. If Jesus was all-wise, he would have known what Judas was doing. He wouldn't have succumbed to the plots of his enemies. Jesus never tried to convince people that he was the truth by such means. Instead, he died for them. And to those who know that's what they need, Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God. Which is why he's so weak and foolish to the world. So we're called to preach this stumbling block and this folly. And God is pleased to save people through it in verse 21. So that his wisdom and his power are revealed, not ours. In verse 24 he continues, but to those who are called. So let me go back. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's another way of saying we preach Christ crucified. He's preaching the wisdom of God and the power of God. And to those called by the gospel, not the general call that goes out to the world, but those who respond in faith to Christ, to those who have that faith created in them by the word, however, Jesus is all-powerful and Jesus is the substance of all wisdom. 4 in verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, those are not concepts, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He is the wisdom of God, and He is the power of God. He's talking in verse 25 about Jesus. The foolishness of God, the weakness of God. God's foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of the world, and His weakness is stronger than the power of the world. And the foolishness and weakness of God are revealed in Christ, who is the wisdom and the power of God. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That's what a church is mostly going to look like. Right? That's what a church is going to look like. Why do we think that it's the best and the brightest, the smartest, the strongest, the cleanest, the most put together, that will be attractive. Beloved, the world has that all over the place. Go to the gym if you want to be intimidated. Watch some high school senior bench press more than you ever have at your strongest point in life. It's great. Right? Go to, you know, listen to guys like Jordan Peterson. The man is brilliant. Now, he doesn't follow Jesus, so it's worthless. But, you, I mean, you, you listen to people that you don't like, and you're like, man, that... That person's very wise. That person's very smart. And, and we're, we're, we're pulled in by that. We're drawn to that. 
but a, a, a church is mostly going to look like I mean, look at that in verse 26. Who's, who's, who's willing to accept that, to believe that that's the truth? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Just a building full of nobodies. Right? I mean, that's why this nerd is the face of this church to the community, right? The calling they are to consider these brothers of, of Paul, these sisters of Paul, is spoken of in verse 24, the calling to salvation, right? They were recipients of the gift of God's grace. They have been saved. This shouldn't be offensive to us. Now it is, because that, that doesn't mean that, that none of you are smart. It doesn't mean none of you are strong, right? You're going to think I'm patronizing you or not. I know better. I've known you folks for almost five years now. It's not a church full of dumb brutes, Right? That's not what he's after. Does that mean there's nobody in a church that has a degree? Does that mean there's nobody in a church that can bench press a lot? Does it mean there's nobody that works hard in a church? No. He's saying that the world won't think that of you because of what you believe. And it's full of people that have bought in by grace through faith to this message that to them is entirely implausible and foolish and stupid. We are the recipients of God's grace, and not many of us are what the world would call wise or powerful or prestigious. God isn't bringing people into the church by making the church look like, look, you want to be with the best and the brightest, you need to go to church. You want to be where the most talented, the strongest, the smartest, the wisest, the greatest, they're at the church. But that's not what they're supposed to find when they come here. Why? Because of what we believe. We are the people that believe this message. So yes, the world is going to think this is weak and stupid. You know what it's like to be condescended to by somebody that has a different worldview than you. It's not God's strategy to recruit the finest people and therefore win the world through the talent and wisdom and abilities of the best of us. We, of course, we desire that. We want the best to be saved. Because, beloved, we are still infected by the world's idea that the wise and the powerful of the world are necessary to get anything done. How many times have you thought or said or heard said, man, if that guy, if that lady got saved, imagine what they could accomplish for the kingdom of God. Nothing that you can't. Nothing. Right? Why, why do we, th- when God calls a man, He bids him come and die. God doesn't go looking around like, oh man, you're the, I mean, David had taller, stronger brothers. He's out in the field playing the harp. That's not the guy I'm picking to be the king. He's a harp player. He also could kill a bear, right? I mean, he was no joke, but he didn't look like that. But we, we, we want this. We're so hungry for us to be credible in society. We're not credible. We're never going to be so long as we're faithful to this message. I mean, what did, I mean, Jesus, how, how terrible it is when all men speak well of you. I thought that was the goal of life. Aren't we supposed to have good character and, and be above reproach? Absolutely. 
But they're not going to think that. You can't be above reproach if you believe something that's so stupid and are gullible enough to buy into this Jesus stuff. I just read something today. Somebody talking about how stupid it is to believe in the flood because how did the kangaroos hop from Ararat to Australia? That's enough to the world who's so wise. The Bible's dumb. Kangaroos didn't get down to Australia. I don't know. Maybe there was another boat at some point in history. I mean, it's just, it's just, but, but I'm saying they look at that and say, see, look how dumb you are. And it's like, do you not think that, that kangaroos could like, what? I read a little, I can't repeat it here because it was so nasty, but the, somebody tweeted a thing about the sins that Jesus saw and still forgave. And they thought it was just so stupid that when Jesus was dying for sin, he was dying for this kid that was doing blank or, you know, this horrible thing. And it was like, that's your Savior? He died for people that do that? Yes. Yes. And thank God He did. But we, we, we want this to be credible. We're hungry to be accepted as legitimate, to be praiseworthy and successful by the world standard. And that tempts us to throw caution to the wind when it comes to the simple gospel's ability to do the work. Why do we... I hope I don't offend any of you. I don't know who you like, or so that's not my goal. And I don't dislike these men. Let me be clear about that. I, it seems to me that they're brothers in Christ. I just, like, people go goo-goo-ga-ga over Tim Tebow because he's a Christian and a quarterback. Listen, God doesn't need quarterbacks to save people. Tim Tebow's not bringing more people into the faith because he's Tim Tebow, or Paul's a liar, first of all. Second of all, if he was the magic quarterback sent from heaven, don't you think God would have given him the ability to throw the deep ball? All right, so let's just be honest. Then you get like Tony Dungy. Like, you can write a book and sell it in Christian stores. Does he meet the qualifications of an elder? Does he know how to shepherd people? Does he shepherd at his local church? You say, Tony, you shouldn't be so judgmental. I'm not judging their faith. I'm not saying they're insincere. I'm saying, why do we think, oh man, if you put somebody in a great position that has a lot of talent, more people, the young people love that. The young people listen to them. Young people have had enough of the novelty and the nonsense. Trust me. They know it's dumb. They know what we're trying to do with pizza parties. They get it. Right? Just look, it's going to drive people away. The more you preach Christ, your church is probably not going to explode. And especially when you tell people, when people begin to realize that part of this is that, look, not many of you are wise or powerful or strong by worldly standards, and that's why you're here. That's why I'm here. Like, I'm not being, like, I don't have anything. Like, like when, when I, we just spent so much money on a plumber. Okay, this isn't a plea for money, nothing like that. But do you know why? Because I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I can't put in a sink. I get my oil changed at NTB and Walmart. My dad showed me how to change oil in a car. I'm not getting under there. I don't know how to, like, oil goes everywhere. I'm a, I'm a dope. Right? I, I, this is what I do. I don't, it's, it's, it's easy to look good up here. I get to wear a suit. I, I write this down. It's, it's easy to look like, oh, that's why you're up there. Th no, that, that's, I can talk in public because I've done it for over 20 years, not because I'm a skilled speaker. I, I don't have anything. That, that's not why God called me to this. 
And, and notice the way this, this, this word works here. The, the, when we throw caution to the wind because we desire to be credible, right? We're at odds with the purpose and the plan and the means of God. That's why it's a problem. The whole point of the gospel is that it reveals Christ, the wisdom and the power of God, who is foolish and weak according to the world. And if we cover up the foolishness and weakness of the gospel, if we try to dress up this message in fame and perfection and legitimacy and power and great wisdom and talent and skill, we're covering up Jesus. We, we have to embrace God's weakness and foolishness in Christ for ourselves. We're, that we're willing to be identified with Him in this. Now, our church doesn't have an orthodoxy problem. Alright, so I'm not saying this like, we don't believe that Jesus is the only way, and we believe there's actually other ways that, that people can get saved or something, or that God does need our input. You all know that He doesn't. That's not why I'm preaching this. Alright, I, I'm, I'm not worried about that for our church. I'm preaching this because for some reason lately, I've, I've, I wonder if we perceive that it's just not enough. That yes, we have to have it, right? I, our church isn't full of heretics or something. Yes, we have to have it. I, I know that we all believe this. But do we trust that it's the only thing that we have to have? We have to have. Verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God did this on purpose. He made this choice. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world. He's talking about us and He's talking about the cross. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose it to be this way. God chose to mostly pick the foolish. God chose to mostly pick the weak. God does not want to co-opt the wise and the strong. He wants to shame them and confound them. He wants them to look like what they really are as He sees them. He wants them... If the foolishness of God is His wisdom, then our wisdom is our foolishness. And if the weakness of God is His power... Our power is our weakness. Right? It's not, it's not that when wise people or learned people or strong or mighty people read this, that what God is trying to do is, is push them away. So that if you're like that, the gospel must not be for you. No, 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 no. The wise, the strong, the powerful, they're not meant to read this and go, oh, then God doesn't want me. No. We're meant to be brought to nothing by the gospel. And realize that before Almighty God, who is omniscient and omnipotent, no one is wise and no one is strong. It's a tongue-in-cheek way to talk to everybody. Everybody's here. No one is wise. No one is powerful before God. Because God doesn't evaluate like we do. If, if the power of God is seen in His Son laying down His life, how do you suppose a Christian looks strong? If the wisdom of God is Jesus willingly giving Himself up to be crucified, 
to come in a way that would bring about shame and scandal, then what does it really mean for a Christian to be wise? I will take sitting in a room in a hospital with an elderly saint that has about 10 minutes left than I would sit down with Socrates himself. And I mean that with all of my heart. All of my heart. This is God's design. We, God says here of all unbelievers that they don't have faith because they think they are strong and wise. And they know how to determine what can save. They know what to do to save themselves. The scripture says we are foolish and weak. So God comes to us like that in mercy to save us. God chooses what is low and despised to the world because it's low and despised to the world. Because human beings honestly think all our talents and achievements and ethics mean something. We must be brought to absolutely nothing to be saved. And and maybe you weren't saved in a circumstance like that. That's okay. It doesn't mean you're not saved. But this is always a message of weakness and foolishness. And you're always being saved by it. So as we live the lives of believers in this world, God is going to be destroying us all the time. Now, we're safe. Our souls are His. I don't mean, I mean killing everything human in us. Everything fallen in us. Us believing doesn't mean that we are wise and powerful. And the rest of the world isn't. We have to be brought to nothing. God shows what is not to bring to nothing what is. What is he saying here? What is not? What does the world not have? Wisdom and power. And you must have those to be saved. So God shows what is not to bring to nothing what is. God shows what we do not possess to bring us to nothing so that what is not in us Salvation may finally come. God brings to nothing the things that are in verse 28. What is that? What are the things that are? Everything. Our wisdom, our power, our works, our self-validation, our self-satisfaction, our inflated opinions about ourselves and what has worth and what has true value and what is good and right and just and true. Everything is Everything. When we talk about the things that are, we're talking about everything. God is undoing the world in its entirety, everything by the word of the cross, breaking the world down to absolutely nothing so that we can be saved. Why is that his strategy? So that in verse 29, no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's a priority to God. That's the reason for his design. No bragging here. No noses in the air, no puffed out chests. No one boasts in the presence of God. Only a fool would do such a thing. Only a weakling trying to cover up the fact that they're weak would do such a thing. Boast in the presence of God. 
our boasting here is not just bragging. It's, it's a word for our delusions of grandeur about self-salvation. And God wants to save us, so He destroys all that in us. All our righteousness and wisdom and power which combine in our self-absorbed, idol-making hearts to reject God as weak and foolish, all of that has to be put to death. And it's still in us, even as Christians. It's still going to rear its ugly head all the time. But there won't be one ounce of credit for us to take in our salvation. Not one of us who is granted eternal life will have a single thing to take credit for. And it is through the gospel, through the all-powerful, all-sufficient, all-wise word of the cross that God will put that to death in us and in the world through Jesus Christ. If we aren't committed to the foolishness and the weakness of this message, people will not be saved. The difference between... The, the big word now right now is uh, deconstruction. Right? So many, particularly college-age believers, they, they uh, come out of the church come out of that culture, which I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking about like it's bad. I'm saying that this is how they graduate high school, they go to college, and they, they begin to learn things that maybe their parents or their churches didn't tell them, which, which it's always very ironic. Hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, every kid at college age can complain about their parents and their upbringing. You know, um, takes having kids to start to realize, oh my gosh, I don't know everything. You know, but... So the big word now in Christian circles is deconstruction. We're deconstructing our faith and building it again with what is really true. And it's amazing how what is really true is that everything you want is okay. It's amazing. But anyway, deconstructing, that's, that's the big word now. The difference between God's deconstruction of us, which is what the text is talking about, And our alleged deconstruction of God or religion or whatever it is, is that God's deconstruction of sinners, God's deconstruction of this world and our ideas about faith and religion, that saves sinners. Our deconstruction of God and His objective truth and authority over us condemns sinners. You can't deconstruct God. He is. You you can't take Him apart, right? You can't. You you can think that you can. You can raise some very plausible arguments that might sound plausible to people that are willing to listen to them, but sound implausible to those who know God's word, right? I mean, that's the way the world talks. I mean, that's think about you. You can't have a discussion about truth, right? Everything has to be in the realm of feelings and what's not nice and but isn't God nice and so you need to deconstruct how you were raised that homosexuality is a sin. No, it's a sin. It's evil. Those that don't repent of sin suffer eternal condemnation. That's the truth. Now, we need to find appropriate ways to talk to people and not call them names and get on all that stuff, but beloved, you can't deconstruct that. Right, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. I know that I'm wasting valuable time here. It's already 7:22, and I'm hungry. But there, there will be no. There will be no grounds for boasting before God. None. So, what does that have to do with deconstruction? Well, what all you're doing is saying, "I have decided what God is, and I like it." Nothing that receives glory before God will be found in us. We don't have the ability to put God on trial. That's insane. 
In fact, in verse 30, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All of that. You see what he's doing? What were you and I? Nothing. Weak, foolish, thinking we're strong and smart. Rejecting God and because of God, I'm in Christ Jesus. He's talking to the people in the church now. Why are you here? Because of God. Not because of what you were or what you have. It's because of Him that you're in Christ Jesus who became to us everything we didn't have and needed. Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see that? God gives us power and wisdom for salvation in Christ. It's all God, it's none of us. This isn't just something that we, that goes unsaid in the church. Right? We don't say this with our words and then deny it with our actions and our attitudes about how you need to really be something. And, and, uh, you need to be, you know, all these things. And it, it's, beloved, it, it's because of God that we have all of this. Christ became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness. He's that for me. Sanctification. He's that for me. Redemption. He's that for me. That's what makes me a fool. Because nothing I have can get me that. That's what makes me a weakling. No strength I have can grab on and hold to that. And so that's what we, that becomes our story. Not look at me, look at how I've changed, look at how strong I am, look at how put together I am. Listen, it's okay to be put together. It's okay to be strong. It's okay to be wise. But it's not our story. And it's not how we draw people into the church and how we proclaim salvation. They don't need to know that about us. They need to know where we get the audacity to believe our sins are forgiven. And we tell them, well, it's because of Jesus who became wisdom to me from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, all of it. All the glory for salvation from the believing to the new heavens and the new earth belongs to another. That has to be part of who we are. Let me kind of speed up here. 2-1 and I... When I came to you, brothers, so in other words, so we're weak and foolish. And then Paul, just so you know, he's not being coy in his words, decides to use no other weak fool but himself to exemplify all this. So in two one, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, which in Corinth, kind of one of the hubs of Greece at the time, was a major thing. Paul didn't come to the Greek city of Corinth where the people are so impressed and swayed and convinced and moved by lofty speech and wisdom with lofty speech and wisdom. So, real quick, if we're going to talk about contextualization, we have to understand it biblically, not as a worldly principle that we read into the text. Paul didn't contextualize with lofty speech and wisdom because they were into lofty speech and wisdom. Isn't it amazing that when God appointed the time for His Word to go public with the Gospel, He does it in the birthplace of the world's entire philosophical foundation, ancient Greece. Do you know how many things we believe and practice and hold to today because of Greek philosophers and their effect on culture? 
He comes to the wisest and most acclaimed period in history to say, look, everybody's a fool and everybody's a weakling. And when God says that he's not being mean, he's telling the truth that saves people. If we don't like hearing that, then what are we inside? I don't need reminded that I'm foolish. Why not? I don't need reminded that I'm weak. I don't need reminded all the time that I'm a sinner and I worship idols and the idols I make. Why don't you need reminded of it? Because I already know it. Fair enough. Apply that for the rest of your life in everything. It's no use hearing something that you already know. So what do you want out of the preacher? All right, what, do, what do we want out of the preacher? Innovation? I don't have that. You have no idea how much I wish I did. I don't. God is not a respecter of persons. Stop trying to impress him.